Uh, we're looking at this subject of how the church grows and develops. And two weeks ago, we looked at gifts being parts of the body of Christ. So the gifts that we have is equivalent to being us being a part of the body of Christ. And in Ephesians 4.16, it tells us that this is how the church grows as each part pulls together and does its work. So we looked at that, we had a little discussion of that on Wednesday. And then uh, last week we looked at this subject quite quickly, but we looked at the subject of, it's not actually one word, the um, software seems to have decided that's one word and um, and broken it up in the very last syllable, but it's it's, uh, several words, elders, Bishops, overseers, shepherds, pastors, presbyters. In the New Testament, it's all the same thing. Uh, These are the people, the men who lead the church in the individual congregations. Um, Yep. The men who lead and guide and shepherd and teach. And it is men. Uh, I know it's a controversial point, but I think the Bible is quite clear that the, the, the authoritative leadership in the church is through men because the church of all institutions is meant to reflect the creation order as it ought to be. Might be very different in business or in school or in police force, but in the church, that is meant to reflect uh, how things, the deepest reality of how things ought to be. And today we're going to be looking at the subject of the deacons who serve and minister to the church and in the church. So I'm just gonna turn around and see whether that's visible. You can see that. I could see it if I was turning the other way. Right, we're all happy on that. Um, if I get to a part where the writing is too small, you have to tell me, not that I can do anything about it now, but I shall know for another time. Right, deacons, deacons. So what is a deacon? What is this word, deacons? Deacon like ditchling, ditchling deacon, ditchling deacon. No, no, that's not, a, that's a beacon, uh, a, a bonfire, that's a beacon, that's not a deacon. Um, a thing that you, when you're hunting ducks, things that you, a thing that you, makes a quacking noise to deceive ducks. No, that's not a deacon, that's a decoy. Oh, dear, oh dear. A deacon, a deacon. It's a jug in which they serve ale in Lord of the Rings or Game of Thrones or something like that. No, that's not a deacon, that's a flagon. I've no idea how you got those mixed up. Uh, A deacon is a person, and if you want to have an idea in your mind, don't have the idea of a bonfire or a duck deception or a jug for ale, but think of a waiter. Uh, when you last went and had a cup of coffee at Moe's and they said, take a seat, I'll bring your coffee to you. The person who brought you the coffee was a deacon. Uh, That's what it means. It's uh, the sort of servant in particular who brings stuff to your table, a table waiter, Uh, a servant uh, in Greek, diakonos, Uh, which gets turned into English deacon. So that's the word deacon. It's a servant, and and, uh, it can be rather interchangeable with 
just servant in general or slave in general, but if you had a particular idea of the servant, it's a servant who distributes something or a servant who brings you something. Uh, so a table waiter is not such a bad idea. A servant who gives you something. So we shall go through the material or attempt to go through the material in the Bible in a reasonably prompt way. Where does this deacon stuff come from? Now, elders, of course, we found in the Old Testament. But I don't think deacons comes from the Old Testament. It comes from Jesus. Jesus, who is the deacon or the servant. And that's what we read in Mark 10, right at the beginning. And that's what Mark quoted to us. I think he had a slip of the tongue and said it was Matthew 10. But actually, it's Mark chapter 10 uh, with these famous words, which I'll read to you. Mark 10. 42, Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, your diakonos. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Doulos meaning slave. But even the Son of Man did not come to be served. He didn't come to be deaconed, but to serve, but to deacon and to give his life as a ransom for many. The deaconing thing comes from Jesus because he is the great servant, the great one who serves us. The salvation of Jesus is an act of service. So I know some of you have got links with the catering industry and uh, cooking stuff up, taking it out, serving it to people at table. Uh, all of that and all the thinking behind that, all the way of thinking, uh, that's exactly the way of thinking Jesus had in the way he saves people. It may come as a little bit of a surprise to you if you're not used to Christian things. You might think that Christian... Christianity is about being good um, and uh, trying your best. Well, that's not entirely absent from Christianity, but that's certainly not the keynote. The keynote is, the first thing is, we messed it up. We don't do what we should do. We're not good people, and we need somebody else to come and clean up after us. We need somebody to do that for us that we can't do for ourselves. And Jesus came to serve us. Is that a good thing, do you think? I think it's brilliant. Absolutely tremendous. The salvation of Jesus is via his service and he leaves us this example to follow. Now, that's where it comes from. And because service is so deeply characteristic of the Christian life, this idea, this word diaconia, deaconing, is used in a general way for all sorts of Christian service. So here's an interesting verse, 1 Corinthians 3 verse 5, where Paul is trying to give his readers an idea of the relative importance of the people, uh, the Christian missionaries that have been doing stuff and uh, the, the Corinthians want to sort of make idols out of them and worship them and say, you know, I'm for Apollos, I'm for Paul, or I'm for Peter. And uh, 
Paul is saying, well, who, who do you think these guys are anyway? What are they? What is Apollos? What is Paul? Only servants, diakonos, through, you, through whom you came to believe as the Lord assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, that was my bit. Uh, Apollos watered it, he came and perhaps did Bible studies with you and explained things that he hadn't understood, but the person who made it grow was God. He's the important one, he's the one you should be worshiping, we just did our bit. It's interesting that when he talks about ministry in that uh, and service, he uses the word diakonos for that. And he uses it in other places, for example, in Ephesians 3, 7, I became a servant of the gospel, or if you like, a, a minister of the gospel. And the, the word he uses there is diakonos, by the gift of God's grace given to me. And he refers to his friend Tychicus as a dear brother and faithful servant. That's in Ephesians 6, verse 21. Tychicus, the dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord. Well, what does he do? He does all sorts of things. He comes and prays with you. He comes and encourages with you. He shares news with you, takes things to and fro, probably takes some of the uh, meetings. Um, And overall, and all that general activity is diakonos. It's service. It's giving you something. Uh, And he will bring news, it says. I'm sending him for this very purpose. So all Christian ministry, it's many, many different shapes and sizes, has the nature of service, and can, you can use that word diakonos for it. So I don't know, all sorts of Christian service, somebody perhaps greeted you when you came into the building this morning and they served you by welcoming you. Uh, maybe uh, you've You've been prayed for by somebody. Maybe you're praying for somebody. Uh, that's a, a service. It's a giving service. Maybe you, somebody said an encouraging word to you this morning, or maybe you'll, somebody will say an encouraging word to you before you leave. They might say, it's been good to see you. Uh, they might say, I've been wondering how you are. I've been thinking about you and your family. Um, something like that. It's, that's encouraging, isn't it? Uh, makes you feel that you are worth something, which is exactly what you are. Maybe somebody will listen to you. Maybe they will give you attention. How are you? Oh, I feel miserable. What's been happening? Oh, first of all, the washing machine broke down. Then uh, the kettle fell on my toe. Then I heard something, etc., etc. And if somebody listens, it's actually a gift, isn't it? You might think a listener does nothing, but actually a listener gives you the gift of their attention. And there's all sorts of things. Uh, so um, somebody will have set out chairs, uh, somebody will have switched on the PA, somebody's hopefully twiddling the buttons even now. Um, all of these things <coughs> are um, gifts, uh, and we could put them under the heading of service like that. And while everyone in the New Testament is called to service, the New Testament does seem to recognize some people particularly, you could sort of give them a capital S or a capital D, as official servants or official deacons, so that the general becomes particularized in some individuals. Uh, That seems to be the pattern, let's look at that. So would you please, if you have got your Bible there, 
uh, see with your own eyes in your own Bible, Philippians chapter one, verse one, where in addressing the, the church at Philippi, uh, Paul and Timothy, so they're saying, I want to address you lot, you dear people at Philippi, And how does he address them? He said, uh, so the, the writer gives his own name first. Paul and Timothy, servants, doulos in that case, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. So the saints, uh, saints doesn't mean a particular elite of spiritual superstars. Um, it, it just means Christians to all the the people who've been made holy by believing in Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with, and then he singles out two groups of people, the overseers, the episkopos, so that would be in English bishops, and deacons, the diakonos. Diakonos is singular, but I'm not trying to confuse everybody. So he does seem to single out in your church, you've got everybody, and you have two groups of people worthy of mention, the overseers, the elders, so we greet them, and the deacons, apparently there's a group of deacons, at least more than one deacon, uh, servants with a capital S. They are, seem to be recognized as a particular group of people, having an, you know, recognized, if you like, officially, should we put it that way. And if you turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, he seems to be addressing the church it's in Ephesus that he's writing to, unless, I've, unless I'm mistaken. And he says, you need to get the church back on the right lines. It's, I think the background is it's gone off the rails in certain particular ways, and it needs to be put on the rails again. Uh, one of the problems is you've been appointing the wrong sort of overseers. So 1 Timothy 3 verse 1, here's a trustworthy saying, if anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he deserves a noble task. Mind you, the overseer must be such and such and such, which we looked at the other day. Uh, so there's that, those important people, I say important not because of self-importance, but they're key in the amount of good they can do and the amount of harm they can do. Uh, these people, you mustn't get the wrong people as elders. And then in verse eight, he also goes to some trouble to describe the, the things that deacons must be. Uh, verse eight, deacons likewise are to be, etc. So uh, there's evidence number two that in the early church, deaconing was not only a, 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 a term for general Christian service, but there were particular people who were identified and named and known as deacons. And let me give you one more example, which is in Romans 16 verse one. In which, in the personal greetings, Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, 
She is a diakonos of the church in, uh, we would say, Kentria. I think they would probably pronounce it differently, uh, Kentria. It's an interesting verse. Does it mean that she is, she serves the same way as everybody else in the church at Kentria? It seems a little strange to say she is a servant of the church in Kentria if it wasn't a particular designation. Who's Phoebe? She's one of the deacon ladies in Kentria. She's recognized as such. That's the, the name and the uh, official recognition that we give her. So I would put that as uh, one piece of evidence, again, for their being identified people in, uh, in churches who get this title given to them. Interestingly, at the, uh, if you have an authorized version, I think you'll find at the end of chapter 16, it says something to the effect of, this letter was dictated by Paul and delivered by Phoebe uh, to Rome. Now that's, that, that isn't in all the, the versions, it isn't in the NIV, but it's interesting to think that maybe, maybe she was one of the services that she offered was to say, I, I'm up for traveling across to Rome. Uh, if you've got a letter to take, I'll take it. Uh, you can trust me. Um, she must have been a pretty gutsy sort of lady, I think, to do that sort of thing. There were specific people called this and functioning as this. And if this was Jesus' way for them in their churches, then it would be a good thing for us too. We don't mindlessly copy every single thing in the New Testament, so we don't have to have a mindless copy of incest like they did in 1 Corinthians. Um, but if there's a pattern uh, that seems to have approval, then uh, that would be a good thing to copy. So, creeping up on the subject. So here's a question. Jesus is Lord of the church. How does he rule the church? And it's actually a bit of a controversial area, but I would suggest this is about right. Uh, he forbids certain things. So we know that Jesus forbade trying to serve two masters. I haven't put the reference, but you probably know that one off by heart. Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll love the one and hate the other. You can't do it. Uh, so it's a sort of forbidding thing. And Jesus commanded things. So some things that he said, I definitely want you to do this. So interestingly, he said about the Lord's Supper. Do this in remembrance of me. He didn't say, well, I'd advise you to do, you might think about it. He said, do this. So that seems to bear the quality of a command. Love one another as I have loved you. By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Um, he commands certain things and he gives principles about certain things. So he says it is better to give than to receive. That seems to me on the level of a, a value statement. So it's not saying don't ever receive anything. But he says uh, there's, a, there's more of a blessing in giving than receiving. So if you have the opportunity, if you have the opportunity to receive, well, do so graciously. If you have the opportunity to give, 
There's something better about that. And there are sort of principles by which you can evaluate, this is good, that's better. Uh, in this situation, that would be a good idea. In this situation, that would be a good idea. And there's a sort of wisdom that is called for. So, three things. Sometimes Jesus forbids things. Sometimes he commands things. Sometimes he just gives us principles and we steer our way through situations uh, according to the principles. And there is freedom in the Bible. Uh, it is for freedom Christ has set us free, Galatians 5 verse 1. One of the things the gospel brings is freedom. So we haven't got to get too tangled up. Are we getting such and such exactly right? Has he forbidden it? Well, if he's forbidden it, don't do it. Has he commanded it? If he's commanded it, let's do it. If he's given us principles, let's understand the principles and work within those principles. If he hasn't told us quite specifically then we're free as long as we're not disobeying a command uh, and we're fitting in with the principles. There is freedom. Freedom is a gospel thing. Christian churches have liberty. Uh, so here's some examples of, of things that we're free over. Um, if you're a slave, says Paul, that's fine. If you have a chance to get your freedom and you'd like to do that, then take it. You, you, you're free to, to do either of those. Uh, if uh, um, you know you're supposed to sing, uh, we meet together to sing. But you don't—that's not all you do. And at some point, you have to say, "Well, we're free to stop singing now, and we'll do something else." It, it isn't commanded. There isn't a command that says, "Thou shalt sing for 33% of thy meetings together, or 73.4%." Uh, there's a freedom. You, you know, you're tired of singing. If you had enough, well, we'll sit down and we'll we'll listen, are we tired of listening, well let's sing something. There's freedom in things like that. Um, timing of meetings, the New Testament doesn't say uh, thou shalt meet at 11 o'clock and 6.30, in fact, in the New Testament, um, I'm heading for dangerous ground here, but in the New Testament uh, they seem to be working on Sunday and so they would meet in the evening and most of the recorded meetings, uh, certainly in the book of Acts, are eat, meet in the evening. And marriage, well, you're not commanded to marry and you're not commanded to be single. Uh, God gives different gifts to different people and you can choose who you can marry. So there's freedom in all sorts of things and there isn't only one career that Christians have to have. There's all sorts of freedom and I think in this matter of deacons, uh, there is a degree, uh, a real degree of freedom to the churches in how they particularly implement this. So I'm going to look at the forbidding and the commanding and the principles. And this, the writing on this one I think is a bit small. Uh, so what does he forbid? Uh, he does forbid the wrong sort of people becoming deacons. So let's go back to the 1 Timothy 3 and see what he says should not happen. Because I think it is it's not saying if somebody if you can tick all these boxes, they should be a deacon. The way it's working is if they don't tick the boxes, they should not be a deacon. So 1 Timothy 3.8, deacons likewise, in other words, like what we've been saying about elders, are to be. Well, if you've got the New International Version, you'll see they are to be men. It doesn't have that in the original. It just has, it goes straight on to 
this word, worthy of respect. It's a word to do with the mind, and it's really saying something like serious-minded, uh, not airheads, not, not completely vacuous people who you can't count on to say anything serious. They're just in it for a giggle or a laugh. He says, no, they don't want that sort of person being a deacon. They've got to be somebody worthy of respect, somebody with some, some seriousness about them. Uh, and then the next word is sincere. In the original it says not too talking, not the sort of person who will tell you one thing one day and one thing another, or say one thing to one person and then the opposite to another. They've got to have a, an integrity about them. Uh, they're not indulging in much wine, or they're not headed towards much wine. It doesn't say they don't drink at all, but it says we don't want people with a weakness uh, for alcohol, who are under the power of alcohol, who are perhaps addicted to it. Um, one of my friends who knows people in the Houses of Parliament says there are actually a lot of MPs who are high-functioning alcoholics. And I have to say that the Bible says, okay, maybe, maybe that's what MPs do and maybe they can manage it, but in the church, we're not to have that. So if somebody comes along and they're sitting there, well, they're the, the MP for um, Brighton Pavilion. I ought to be an elder if I'm an MP. Well, I'm afraid I shouldn't have been quite so specific, should I? But if you, whatever else, if the person is headed towards too much alcohol, they should not be a deacon. They must keep hold of the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. So they've got to understand the truth of the gospel. They've got to be gospel people, and they've got to hold that in a clear conscience. There's got to be an integrity and a consistency about it. So they're not living the opposite of what they claim to believe. They must let them first be tested. So Paul seems to envisage, he doesn't say exactly how you test uh, but they should be, uh, you know, like you do with, like you do with, oh, I can't think of an example, something you try out and test. So you test paint by painting a little bit somewhere and making sure that it doesn't fry the, the thing that you're painting onto. Or if you, sorry? Well, it could be a probationary period, yes. Yeah, it just says you, you try them and test them. Um, uh, don't, don't, I mean, put on trial, but you know, give somebody a responsibility, see if they can do it. Because uh, people sometimes say they can do some things, and then when you try them, they, say, well, they don't actually manage to do it at all. So, uh, a, a testedness. And if they are unaccusable, if there's nothing against them, let them deacon. That's down to verse 10. And then uh, this verse is controversial, verse 11. In the same way, so there's another in the same way. So the word uh, there, women, are to be worthy of respect. So as you may or may not remember, there isn't, uh, a, a, there isn't a particular word in the New Testament to distinguish woman from wife, like in French, ma femme, uh, means my, my woman, my wife. Uh, so is this talking about, is he changed now to lady deacons, in the same way the women, 
So the women deacons must be worthy of respect. Or is he saying the wives of the deacons? I do tend to think that he's talking about the wives of the deacons. Could be the other way, but let's, let, either way, he's saying that these two must be worthy of respect. Same word as used before, serious-minded. People whose minds are on the gospel and they hold that with real weightiness. Not di- diabolical, that's the original word. Um, a, a diabolical deacon or a diabolical wife, uh, it, it, it's actually a slanderer. That's what uh, diabolical literally means. Because the devil slanders, doesn't he? Hence, we we think of it rep- re- we think of it as referring to that particular spiritual person. But the idea is more general than that, and so it's translated here: not malicious talkers. Very important that, because somebody who has a, a, a official capacity in the church will get to know things, perhaps that other people don't know, um, perhaps secrets that are confided. They ought to remain secrets. If they were were said in confidence, they should stay in confidence. Um, And particularly the the women, uh, can I put this, how can I put this without exposing myself to, uh, I don't think I'll even bother. Um, What is said here is, is about talk. And everybody knows how juicy it is to communicate some um, fault, some failing, some shortcoming of somebody else. And in this case, he says, that's a particular thing that we don't want with these women, whether they're the deacon's wives or whether they're the lady deacons. Not slanderers. Temperate, meaning sober, self-controlled, They don't fly off in all directions. And trustworthy, faithful in everything. So these women are to be, I think we would say, good examples of what it is to be a Christian. So we're left with either it's the lady deacons who are to be this, or it is the wives of the men who would be deacons. Yeah, uh, the the NIV says their their wives, yes. And then he goes on to this uh, verse 12, which makes me think there's the link. The the deacon must be the husband of but one wife and must uh, must manage his children and household well. Uh, And here again, I don't think he's telling us that you can't have a deacon who is a single man. That's not the purpose of this list of characteristics. He's saying if he's a married man, it's got to be a Christian marriage. We don't want a a bigamous marriage. We don't want him having a mistress. He's the husband of one wife. And in the family, family is particularly important as a sort of prototype of the church. A church is a family. And the, the, the running of the church is very akin to the running of a family. 
And if the deacon can't run his family, uh, then he won't be able to be much use in the church. He must manage his children and his household well. So the, 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 the word well or good is repeated. Uh, so I, I put it, he must, uh, leading his children and his whole household good. Those who have served well, those who have deaconed good, gain a good standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. So the, uh, the scrutiny on the, the deacon's family, is that functioning well? Would you in any sense look and say, oh, that's, how, that's how to bring up a family? Um, and then the promise that goes after it, those who have deaconed well gain not quite sure the exact meaning of what he's saying, but it's sort of a, a, a standing. And I suppose he's saying that if, if you stuck your neck out and been a deacon, it enables you to, to feel that, yeah, uh, you, you get a bit of feedback. I, I have served, it's been recognized. They gain a good standing and great boldness, assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus which is an interesting promise, isn't it? So 1 Timothy 3, 8, I think is saying, is really forbidding the wrong sort of people to be deacons. Don't get the wrong sort of people as deacons. So deacons, I've put in quite small writing there. Deacons must be without major character and behavior flaws. Their wives must be able to combine well with their partner in this character and in this behavior. Um, that, uh, no, don't, take what I've said in context. Uh, please don't sort of play back the recording of this and write it down word for word, Phil said that, that. I mean, think, think about what it's actually getting at, uh, but I think I've tried to represent the, the, what that passage is getting at. We want, there is a sense in which it's important that the right character of person is a deacon and we don't have the wrong character of person as a deacon. So that's forbidding. Second thing, what does he command? Well, in terms of deaconing, uh, he commands us all to be servants. We all to have the attitude of a servant. He commands us all not, uh, to have the servant mindset. Please look at Philippians chapter two because I can't find a particular command that says you, need, you must appoint deacons, but I can find in the Bible that all of you should be thinking in a servant-like way. And Philippians 2, 5, it says, your mind, your attitude, should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And this is a command for everybody. How did Jesus Christ think? Well, he was in, in very nature God. He did not count equality with God something to be hung on to at all costs, but he made himself a nobody. He made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being found, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself 
and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And we're all to have that servant attitude. And we're told that therefore God exalted him to the highest place. God so valued this as to say, this is such a brilliant thing my son has done. Exalt him to the highest place. Give him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, um, every knee should bow and every tongue confess, Jesus Christ is Lord. Such a precious attitude. And it isn't just that golden passage in Philippians 2 that reflects on this. As you go a little bit further, uh, Paul says in verse 19 and 20, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare, for everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. And he, he says that uh, you know, Timothy is a particular example of this mindset. And it's interesting that Paul says, I haven't got anybody else like him. It's actually quite rare. Although every Christian is commanded to have this mindset, it's actually quite rare to find people who really take this on board. That's what it says. This rare attitude is found in Timothy. So we're commanded to have that attitude. And in terms of deacons, well, there's a pattern in the New Testament. And I think perhaps that, that, that's not quite the same thing as a command, but it does have the force of saying, this is the way Jesus approved of it being. Well, you know, what's the problem with you doing this too? Uh, he gives us a pattern in the church of having deacons. And the deacons exemplify service. Say, who are, who, who, who are the people who have this rare attitude? Oh, these deacons do. They crystallize service. So we need, you know, the, um, need the washing up done. Who will lead us in that? Well, it's a sort of deaconing thing. Perhaps we have to have deacon for washing up. And who will lead? Who will gather people around and say, come on, guys, this is what we need to be doing? Um, the deacons. So that was the commands, things are forbidden, things commanded, and what are the principles? Well, I think there are uh, broadly the principles in Acts chapter six, which, uh, so please turn to Acts chapter six. And I think in this example, there are, it, it isn't just an example like a rock in the sky that doesn't connect to anything. But I think this has got principles in it, but I think we have to be careful we don't push it beyond what it's saying. Uh, and it's sort of a matter of spiritual discernment as to how such principles would be applied. Let me read you the passage, Acts chapter six. So you spot the word deacons in here. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, 
Choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. And the proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So please notice uh, the context of this. It is really an attack on the church. So the church in those early days was attacked from without, from outside with persecution, but here's an attack from the inside where the Greek community say um, to the Hebrew community, uh, however they'd say it in whatever accent they'd say, hey, you're missing us out. Just because we don't uh, speak your language and just because we don't look like you, you're not giving us the food. You give, give food out to the needy widows uh, every day and you keep on missing us out. We just get the, the, um, the rubbish chips at the bottom of the bag, all the burnt ones. And uh, so you, you can see the, uh, the, the potential for um, disunity. So that could really stop the church in its tracks. And you notice that at the end of the passage, it hasn't been stopped in its tracks. Verse seven, so the word of God spread. And, and we'll assume that the word so is, is, is correct. Because of solving this particular problem, getting this right, the word of God spread. So what did they do? Well, notice here that practical need was the trigger. There was a, um, a practical need. Oh, incidentally, did you see the word deacon there anywhere? No. No, it gets, this passage gets brought into the discussion not because the word deacon is there, but the word deaconing is there. And it's there in verse one, the daily deaconing of food, distribution it's translated as. And it's also there in verse two, we shouldn't le- um, neglect the word of God, word ministry isn't in there, we shouldn't neglect the word of God in order to deacon tables. That's what's hidden there as, as, a, as, a, uh, as a verb. And in verse four, it's there too. We will give our attention to prayer and the deaconing of the word. So although the word, the noun deacon is not there, the activity of deaconing is there however many times I just said, three was it? Okay, so that's why it gets brought into this discussion. So they solved this by appointing people to do deaconing and it wouldn't be totally ridiculous to say they were deacons. Well, they did deaconing it anyway. So it's not mentioned as a noun but it's mentioned as a verb. Now what is going on here? People are being overlooked, people complain. Verse two, the 12 gather all the disciples together and say, well, one thing's clear, although we could sort this out ourselves, it would not be pleasing, it would not be right for us to stop doing what apostles do and sort out the chips 
and whatever else you're eating, I don't know, the muesli, the beef burgers, I don't know whether they're into high cholesterol diets or whatever. Uh, you know, we could do that, we could count them out and make sure everybody got the right ones, but it would be wrong for us to stop doing what apostles do to do this. So, so uh, the word and prayer is what we do, said the apostles, and that needs to be safeguarded. And I have to say that later on in the Bible, that's not the only thing that apostles do. Uh, Paul does some deaconing. He actually cuts short his evangelism to do some deaconing and to take a gift to a needy church. So even the principles that I'm uh, describing here are not you know, watertight cast iron principles. So what principles does he give? Just bear with me. Okay. So the practical need, which is in this case it is a practical need, uh, he says it would not be right for us to neglect the word of God in order to deacon tables. Verse three, brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. And I find that quite interesting because if it's just counting out beef burgers, chips, and dolloping out baked beans, let's just imagine that, um, you'd, you'd think, well, anybody can do that as long as they've got right number of hands and eyes. But he says, no, no, actually, this is such a, a matter that we need, we need to have, I don't know why I say these things, why do I bother? Um, we need spiritually minded people because it isn't just, just a counting exercise, there's a spiritual responsibility here. And I find that quite interesting. Choose men who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. Uh, they need to be spiritually full, full of the spirit and mature in wisdom. And, and we're told in verse five, they chose Stephen, a man full of, the, full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And actually he goes on to be a, a very important preacher, doesn't he, uh, in the next chapter. But just as we saw in Timothy, Spiritual qualifications are important, so we see the same thing here. Now, it's, it, they say choose seven and choose seven men. Now, is that at the level of principle or is that simply that seven would be the right number for this, um, the number of widows that you have to look after and that the men is simply, you know, that's, that's the choice that they made. Now, I would say, from the theology of deacons that you don't have to have seven and they don't have to be men. The elders have to be men because they are in a position of authority but the deacons whose primary uh, characteristic is that of service uh, could be like Phoebe and it don't, they don't have to be men. So I think the seven and the men is just a detail in this case. I also notice that the apostles don't say, leave this to us, we'll pick the people, go back and wait for our decision. He says, uh, the apostles say, you choose, who do you feel are these spiritually um, capable people? The congregation decides, uh, and they're certainly involved with this, and so the apostles are certainly involved too. We will turn this responsibility over to them, and we, they also, verse six, they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the apostles set them in place with their blessing. So 
yeah, that, that's one incident. Let's try not to make it bear too much weight, but it does seem to have some useful principles there. And the result is that the problem is solved, which it is, and the people are pleased. Now, where does it say that? I'm sure it said that when I read it. This pleased the whole group, verse five. This proposal pleased the whole group. Now, it's a mistake to run a church uh, on trying to please everybody all the time, but it's very nice when people are pleased, and in this case, this proposal pleased the whole group, verse five. And the word of God spread, verse seven. So something happened there, didn't, didn't it? Uh, some problem was solved, something was advanced, and I remember hearing somebody preach on this, and I was struck by this comment that this particular spiritual problem was not solved at the prayer meeting by praying about it, I'm sure they did pray about it, but the substance of the solution came at the business meeting. Choose some people, think about it, perhaps have a vote, doesn't tell us how they chose them, uh, talk, to, talk to other people, who do you think are this, is, is this sort of person, and we'll appoint them that's business, isn't it? That's church business. You shouldn't think that church business is unspiritual. Spiritual problems can be solved at the church business meeting. And I think it is not an exact blueprint for reasons I've said, but I think there are applicable principles. And then I pointed out, and I put this in this morning, which is why it came up um, out of order. Even these principles are flexible, since Paul himself, at some point in his ministry at least, prioritized diaconia over preaching. He left the preaching to go and take uh, resources, actually take money to a needy church. That's in Acts 11 and in other places too. And what freedom does the Lord of the church give? Well, this writing is so small, even I can't read it. Uh, So here's some freedoms that I think we have. A freedom to assess needs. So, I think we're to look around and say, well, what are the things that might be bottlenecks for us? Uh, I don't think it is, we don't have a daily distribution of food to widows, so it probably isn't that. But there are other things that can be bottlenecks, so we're actually finding it really difficult to do the DBS scheme. What does DBS stand for? Disclosure and barring, yes. And you think, well, that's, what's that got to do with the church? Well, actually, we have to do that to comply with the, good practice, if not the law of the land, that's a bottleneck there. Um, what, what needs might we assess? We might say we've got a number of international people who need supporting and helping and discipling. Uh, any group needs people to do minute taking, and you know it's a really difficult job to find anybody who will say they'll take minutes. What was Spurgeon's definition of a meeting? Uh, Oh, I don't know, it's minutes now, anyway, let's, let's not go there. Um, uh, nowadays, you need a, a website to be looked after, and uh, that's, uh, you need somebody who's spiritually minded and gifted to do that. Certainly doesn't mention that in the Bible. Uh, it doesn't say you need, you know, oh, oh, it does. Yeah, oh, no, it doesn't. Um, that's a new thing. We're free to assess needs, um, working out cleaning rotors, calculating accounts, answering the phone, reporting to the government. Um, and I'm tempted to say that we could include in this deaconing, word ministry uh, 
which is service, which is not in the realm of authority, but, in, but needs dependability. So I, I'm, personally, I would say children's ministry is a role where you could say, well, we don't have to appoint an elder to look after children's ministry. We could have somebody to serve as a deacon, somebody who could um, perhaps serve looking after women's discipling or something like that. That's a suggestion. That wasn't, uh, that was my thought. Uh, freedom to assess people. Choose from among you, it said. We're free to assess people, to say, well, I think so-and-so. I had never thought of this person before, but actually, now you come to think of it, here's somebody that is reliable and capable and um, all of those things that we, we were thinking about. Freedom to assess people. A call for judgment and assessment. I know it's, people have got this idea that you don't judge anybody, um, or well, you don't condemn people, but we do assess people. Assessing is a right Christian thing to do. A freedom to recognize the gifts and abilities of sisters. So here's a, here's a, a realm in which sisters can be recognized as playing a key role in the church. We, we, uh, there's a very strong statement about eldership and the, the authoritative headship in the church, but we ought also to say that there's many, many ways in which women can do things that men can't do, can see things that men can't see and say things that men can't say, and that ought to be recognized, rightly say things that men can't say, and that um, it's not an authority thing, it's a serving thing, so there's a freedom to recognize the gifts and abilities of the sisters. I commend to you, says Paul, Phoebe, a servant uh, of the church in Kentria. Maybe she'd delivered the letter. Uh, a freedom to organize a structure that fits with the principles. I don't think the, the Bible gives us a blueprint for the structure. Uh, so for example, in the church formerly known as Haywards Heath Evangelical Free Church, they, I don't know whether they still do it, but they used to say every leader of something is assessed as a deacon. So the playgroup leader, the Sunday school teacher, the treasurer, the person who um, looks after the social concerns within the congregation, uh, we apply the idea of deacon to all of them and check all of them against that grid of what sort of people they should be. Uh, but they don't, in, in, in that church, to the best of my knowledge, they don't meet together as a group, uh, they just have individual responsibilities. Well, they're free to do that should they wish to do so. Uh, the way we do it is that the deacons meet together with the elders and function as trustees for the purposes of charity law, and I think we're free to do that. So, quick uh, scan through the New Testament material. Uh, it would be great, wouldn't it, if in a few months' time we could get to the point where God is pleased and where the people are pleased and where rough places have been made smooth and the word of God spread. Amen. We're going to sing together number 810.